The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Section 12 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Miltiades, Part 1. Miltiades defeated the army of the Persian king on the field of Marathon. This fact has made his name more familiar for Englishmen, and perhaps for nearly all the Aryan nations, than that of any other Greek statesman or general. Perhaps on a general survey of his own career, no fact could have been more amazing to Miltiades himself than that he should be the instrument for beating back the first great wave of Persian invasion in the mighty enterprise for destroying the liberties of Europe. On the death of his brother Stesagoras, he had been sent by the tyrant Hippias to be governor of the Athenian colony in the Thracian Chersonese. All his sympathies lay with the Eupatrid order, and there is little room or none for thinking that they ever underwent any change. During his whole life he remained an oligarch, and with a certain amount of modification this may be said of Solon also. But both found themselves committed to a course which could end only in the building up of a strong democracy, and Miltiades, who perhaps least cared to advance it, did the most to ensure its supremacy. That he had little love for the upstart Athenian Demos, no one probably would dispute, but his personal feelings toward the Pisistratids must have been affected by the murder of his father Cimon, if, as it would seem, this crime was committed by their orders. But for the present, the work of Miltiades lay far away from Athens, and he was well content to confine himself to the task which demanded his immediate attention, and in this matter he saw that his best course was to ally himself with the people of the land. This he accordingly did by marrying the daughter of the Thracian chief Aleros. He thus succeeded in placing his power as a tyrant on a firm basis. But he was unable, seemingly, to run counter to the influences which affected his brother despots of eastern Hellas. When the Persian king Darius resolved to carry out his mysterious Scythian expedition, he was one of the company of Ionian tyrants, to whom, by the advice of the Mytilinian despot Coes, Darius entrusted the care of the bridge across the Istros. The order issued by Darius was that the bridge should be destroyed as soon as all his army had crossed over. But Coes warned him that though there might be little danger of defeat on the battlefield, there was no small risk of starvation for so mighty a host in a waterless desert. His second command issued in accordance with this, was that the Ionians should guard the bridge for sixty days, and if by that time he should not have returned, they should break it up and sail away. 
the expedition was we are told a miserable failure the army got no water neither could they come up with their enemies whom they charged with cowardly flight we are only doing now what we always do was it is said the scythians response it is our way to move about if the persian wants to fight us let him lay hands on the tombs of our forefathers and they will soon find out how scythians can strike darius soon saw that there was no course open to him but to return to the bridge which happily for himself he found unbroken he had however very narrowly escaped the danger of almost certain destruction the scythians knowing that the persian king had resolved on retreat had taken a shorter road and hastening to the bridge urged the ionians to abandon their trust because by so doing they would not only free themselves but punish a cruel and wanton invader with the utmost earnestness miltiades it is said urged that they should follow this advice and the other despots present called for its acceptance at first with not less eagerness but their vehemence was cooled down when histiaios of miletus warned them that without the help of the persian king they could not possibly keep their own power and thus miltiades still persisting stood by himself against eleven tyrants who may have seen their own real interests with greater clearness than he discerned his own that some actual facts may lie at the root of the strange narrative of this extraordinary enterprise we may admit but for not one single detail in the whole story have we the least evidence from the moment of the crossing of the danubian bridge by the persian army everything is enveloped in impenetrable mist from the moment after their recrossing it on their retreat all again becomes clear it was the wish of darius that the thracians should be made his subjects and his general megabeza subdues them seemingly with singular ease and success miltiades we are told returned to the chersonese and remained there until an inroad of the scythian compelled him to a hurried flight after a short banishment he was restored by the Dolonchians. the task of tracing completely the course or the causes of events for which we have no contemporary records is in truth next to impossible if miltiades fled from his possessions he must have fled from fear either of the persians or of the scythians but herodotus tells us expressly that the scythian inroad did not take place until the third year after the return of the persians from scythia how then should darius have allowed miltiades to remain undisturbed during this interval if he believed the story of his conduct at the bridge that he should not have heard of it is altogether incredible hence some modern historians have looked on this story as a pure fiction fabricated in order to lessen and to get rid of the dislike with which as a fallen tyrant miltiades would be regarded on his return to athens and if cornelius nepos represented his flight as immediately following the scythian expedition we can only say that he made this statement as the one which would most satisfactorily explain the matter if we say as some have said 
that Miltiades could not remain in the Cursonese, after giving this advice for destroying the bridge, we are confronted with the assurance of Herodotus that he remained there for two years or more. The inference seems to be that for this portion of the career of Miltiades we have no historical evidence. But there is another story which is supposed to explain the enmity of Darius for Miltiades, quite apart from the episode at the Istrian bridge. The island of Lemnos, we are told, had been made subject to the Persian king. But when the resources of his empire were being strained to suppress the Ionic revolt of Aristagoras and Histiaeus, Miltiades, sailing from Elaeus in the Chersonese, made a descent on the island, which with Skiras remained henceforth closely connected with Athens. Herodotus accepts seemingly as true the tradition which represented the inhabitants of Hephaestiaia as obeying the summons of Miltiades, that they should quit the island in compliance with their own promise to depart as soon as a ship should accomplish the voyage between Attica and Lemnos in a single day. The Chersonese, as ruled by an Athenian, was now, he adds, Attic soil, and Miltiades had landed at Lemnos before the close of the day on which he had sailed from Elaeus. The men of Marina were less pliable, but they were soon brought to surrender, and the island was filled with Athenian settlers. We have seemingly no means of settling the date of this conquest. We can scarcely suppose that Miltiades would have ventured to attack Lemnos before the Ionic revolt, because then the whole Persian power might have been brought to bear upon him. After the revolt had broken out, the capture of the island would be a comparatively easy affair. But then there would be no longer any need for his flying from the Persians, from whom he had little reason to dread any attack. We may indeed, as some have done, assign his flight from the Chersonese to the time when the Persian fleet, under Harpagas, having taken Miletus, was advancing with victorious course toward the Hellespont. But to bring this incident down to so late a date is to do even greater violence to the declaration of Herodotus that it belongs to the third year after the return of Darius from Scythia. We find ourselves thus involved again in a network of inextricable difficulties. It is possible that the whole story may have been fabricated by Miltiades himself, and we are scarcely justified in rejecting this hypothesis from any feeling of respect for the personal character of this great general. But in truth, speculations about a tradition for which we are unable to adduce any historical evidence must be useless, and we may fairly decline the task as unprofitable. Whatever judgment we may form of previous events, a clearer light is thrown on the acts and movements of Miltiades after the suppression of the Ionic Revolt. During the course of that ill-fated insurrection, he had kept his hold on the Chersonese, but a serious danger threatened him when the Persians became masters of the forts on the Thracian march and sacked or burnt Byzantion and other deserted towns. When at length he heard that the Phoenician fleet of Darius was at Tenedos, he felt that he must lose no time in making his escape. Loading five ships with his goods, 
he set sail for athens circa 493 bc off the promontory of elius he fell in with the enemy and with some difficulty made his way with four ships to imbras and thence to athens the fifth ship was captured and his son metiochas being on board was taken prisoner and sent to darius in sending him the phoenician thought that they were doing the king a service for which they should receive a large reward as they were placing in his hands the son of the man who had endangered the persian kingdom itself on the banks of the istras darius however we are told not only did him no harm but gave him a persian wife with a lavish dowry if the tale be true miltiades became the grandfather of a persian family but it would also follow that the narrative of events at the bridge on the danube is not to be trusted if miltiades had done all that he could to ensure the destruction of darius the generosity of the latter to metiochus becomes an act of almost incredible folly how far during the time which had passed since his departure from athens at the bidding of hippias he had outgrown the oligarchical ideas of his earlier years we can scarcely venture to say having escaped one great danger at sea he reached athens only to encounter a scarcely less serious danger on land the athenians looked on him as a tyrant and miltiades was called to account for the exercise of his tyranny in the chersonese the case was to say the least a difficult one and the trial ended in his acquittal his conduct at this time may have convinced his countrymen that he might be depended upon to maintain the salonian constitution as reformed and developed by cleisthenes and this might be a better reason for electing him strategos or general when it became known that the efforts of hippias had at last succeeded in precipitating the persian power on the shores of attica than could have been furnished by the reputation which he had gained by the conquest of lemnos the athenians could indeed no longer doubt that the persian king had resolved to put forth his full strength on the great enterprise which if successful would ensure the enslavement not of athens only but of europe events which had already happened were evidence that even serious disasters could not make him abandon his purpose the great fleet of mardonius the king's son-in-law had been dashed during a terrific storm on the iron-bound coast of athos and twenty thousand men it is said were killed by the force of the waves dashing them against the rocks or by the sharks which abounded in this part of the sea this catastrophe had only made darius more resolute in testing the disposition of the greek cities towards himself and his designs in all likelihood it was hippias who now suggested that the way for the subjugation of hellas would be best cleared by ascertaining how many of the insular and continental greek cities might be willing to enroll themselves amongst the number of his slaves in 491 b c heralds were therefore sent we are told to all the greek cities with a demand that they should give to the king a little earth and a little water in other words that they should confess absolute submission to his will 
and the summons was obeyed we are told by the people of all the islands visited by the heralds it was obeyed also in all likelihood by those continental cities which we find afterwards among the allies of xerxes in the number of those who thus betrayed or abandoned the common hellenic cause were the aegenetans and athenian ambassadors appeared at sparta with a definite accusation against them they had acted treacherously the athenians urged not towards any greek city in particular but to all who bore the greek name the terms of the charge show not merely the growth of a collective popular sentiment but that sparta was recognized as in some sort the head of this informal confederacy the embassy was followed by prompt and combined action on the part of the spartans and athenians and this joint action it has been thought is explained only by the alleged treatment of the persian heralds when they first came to athens and then to sparta asking for earth and water the story goes that in spite of the acknowledged inviolability of heralds they were thrown at athens into the barathron a chasm into which the bodies of criminals were cast and at sparta into a well with the bidding to get thence the earth and water which they wished to carry to the king it is a strange and unlikely tale the ill-treatment of heralds was a crime not congenial to the greek character in any age in the eyes of athenians and spartans it was a crime especially heinous and the subsequent conduct of the spartans is not at all in accordance with this sudden outburst of unreasoning vehemence it would seem indeed that xerxes when in his turn he sent heralds to the hellenic cities accepted athens and sparta from the number of those to whom he offered his mercy on the very ground that they had violated the sanctity of the herald's office in the persons of the messengers of darius and it is also true that another strange story is related of the mode in which the spartans sought to free themselves from the guilt of this crime they felt themselves to be lying under the wrath of talphibias the herald of agamemnon in the time of the trojan war and two citizens named sperdius and bulis offered to make atonement for it with their blood they were therefore sent to the persian king but although they were ready to die they were not ready to throw themselves into the attitudes of persian adoration and therefore when they were introduced into his presence they withstood those who wished to shove their faces in the dust not to be surpassed by them in magnanimity the king sent them away unhurt the story is suspicious from whatever point of view we may look at it from herodotus all that we may gather is that the dispatching of spurtius and bulis to the persian court took place long after the violation of the heralds but we happen to know that nicolaus the son of bulis and anaristos the son of spurtius were the spartan envoys who were seized on their way to the persian king in the second year of the peloponnesian war by the thracian prince Sitalces, and by him handed over to the athenians this latter circumstance does not indeed prove though it renders it not unlikely that the anecdote about spurtius and bulis was of late growth but we have to note that the political results would be precisely the same whether spartans and athenians killed the heralds or whether they were saved from this crime by not having any envoys to kill 
End of section 12. Section 13 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Miltiades, Part 2. The question therefore turns on the degree of likelihood that Persian messengers should be sent to either of these cities, and to say the least, it is not likely that any would be sent to the Spartans, who had already provoked the anger of the Persian king by strongly espousing the cause of Croesus, and by sending an imperious order for which Cyrus told them that they should smart. As to the Athenians, they had already twice put themselves out of the king's grace, once by repudiating the covenant which their envoys had made with him, and again by refusing to comply with the order of Artaphernes that they should receive Hippias again as their tyrant. The satrap had indeed told them plainly that he regarded their refusal as virtually a declaration of war, and we can scarcely suppose that a message sent afterwards to those with whom the king had not come into conflict would be addressed to others who were already his open and avowed enemies. It is perhaps enough to say that if these two cities were exempted from the number of those who were invited to acknowledge the supremacy of Persia, they would be as much constrained to make common cause with each other as if they had ill-treated or killed Persian heralds. But the procrastination and indifference which the Spartans for the most part showed in the struggle, go far to prove that they by no means regarded themselves as having incurred any special danger by provocations personally offered to the Persian monarch. The return of the Athenian settlers from Euboea was a plain warning that no time was to be lost in resisting the invasion of Datis and Artaphernes, and the Athenians on their part were ready to march to the field of battle under Miltiades and their other generals. But to meet the enemy without any strength beyond their own seemed to them an impossible task, and they felt bound therefore to beseech the Spartans to be prompt in bringing forth their own forces. We may accept or we may reject the marvellous story that the runner Phidippides accomplished the journey between Athens and Sparta, a distance of not less than 150 miles, on the day after leaving the former city. No feats of Persian or Indian runners will bear comparison with such an exploit as this, but Phidippides may have started sooner or spent a longer time on the road than the tale allows, and debate on such a subject answers no good purpose. The main point of the story is that his mission was fruitless. The Spartans received with unmoved countenances the tidings that Eretria had fallen and that its people were enslaved. Their only answer was that they must follow the traditions of their forefathers and that they could not move until the moon became full. The Athenians, therefore, had to march without any help from Sparta to Marathon which the Persians had chosen, we are told, as the ground for deciding the quarrel. But on reaching the battlefield, they were joined by the full military force of Plataea. This little Boeotian city had made an alliance with Athens twenty years earlier. 
under circumstances which boded ill for its consequences. The Spartan Cleomenes, on suggesting the arrangement, looked on it as simply transferring from Sparta to Athens an annoyance which might lead, as he hoped, to a series of wars between the latter city and the Theban confederacy. It became one of the causes which led to a strife on a mightier scale, and involved the destruction of the faithful ally of Athens. But for the present, both Athenians and Plataeans were animated by the full flame of disinterested enthusiasm. The generals alone seemed unable to adopt a decided line of action. If we may follow a story which it is impossible to accept in all its details, some or many of these being self-contradictory, Miltiades, with four of the generals, was anxious for immediate battle, and appealed with the utmost earnestness to the polymarch Callimachus to give his casting vote against the five generals who wished to postpone it. It depended on the polymarch, he said, not only whether Athens should be the first city in Hellas, but whether Hellas should even be free. Callimachus, it is said, did as Miltiades wished, but to our surprise we find that the battle is not fought. The four generals who sided with Miltiades handed over to him the presidency which came to each in turn, but Miltiades nevertheless would give no order for battle until his own turn had come. If all this took place at Marathon, the course of events seems very strange. So long as the army remained there, they were depriving the city of its chief military force. Yet according to the story, they allow nearly a week to pass before they take any step to bring matters to an issue. Although Miltiades had at the outset protested against delay as nothing less than frantic folly. They could not possibly be unaware that while they remained at Marathon, the enemy had it in their power to detach an overwhelming force from their mighty host and send it round Cape Sunian against the city, which in this case must inevitably have been taken. If we follow the narrative of Herodotus, this difficulty is insuperable. It is, of course, at once removed, if we adopt the version of Cornelius Nepos, that the debates of the generals took place not at Marathon, but at Athens. If they were to be idle at all, we may be sure that Miltiades would have preferred to be idle within the walls of the city, which they would thus at least be guarding with all their forces. The temptation to accept the statement of Nepos is strong, but we can find no historical authority for it. We have a choice of many suppositions, but after all, the fact remains, so far as we can see, that the true account of the debates between the Athenian generals has been lost, or perhaps never was written. Nor are we altogether on sure ground when we come to the battle itself. It was fought, we know, on the broad plain which by the lower road between Hymetas and Pentelikas is distant about twenty-five miles from Athens. At either end of this plain was a marsh, the northern one being still at all seasons of the year impassable, while the smaller one to the south was almost dry during the summer. 
and although the vines and olives of marathon have not lacked a poet to sing their praises the barrenness of the plain at the present day would lead us to suppose that they must have grown on the slopes which descended to the plain rather than on the plain itself on this broad and level surface between the hills which rose around them and the firm sandy beach on which the persians were drawn up to receive them stood in the simple story of herodotus the athenian tribes not the four exclusive societies of the old eupatrid days but the ten cleisthenian tribes which had for ever displaced them by the privilege still attached to his office callimachus the polemarch archon headed the right wing the plataeans stood on the left but as with their scanty numbers it was still necessary to present a front equal to that of the persian host the middle part of their army was only a few men deep and was very weak while the wings were comparatively strong at length all was ready and the signs from the victims being declared good the athenians began the onset and went running towards the barbarians the space between the two armies being not less than a mile the persians on seeing them coming made ready to receive them at the same time thinking the athenians mad because being so few in number they came on furiously without either bows or horses on coming to close quarters with the barbarians the athenians fought well being as herodotus tells us the first of the greeks who endured the sight of the median dress for up to this time the greeks had dreaded even to hear their name this bewildering and astonishing statement from a historian living only about two generations after the events which he is relating shows how deeply a false impression may be embedded on the mind when the event treated of is regarded as of supreme importance the battle of marathon 490 b c was the great crisis in the history not of greece only but of europe and here herodotus felt assured the spell of a persian supremacy was broken the athenians therefore would be the first who faced the persian host without flinching the statement if we keep only to the narrative of herodotus himself is utterly untrue the ionian revolt under aristagoras of miletus had been a luckless enterprise but with a pitiable lack of cohesion and very indifferent generalship there had been not a little or even desperate bravery a large persian army under three generals having been completely destroyed in a single battle in caria with emphatic simplicity the historian goes on to tell us that the two armies fought for a long time in marathon the barbarians being victorious in the middle and driving the broken centre of the athenians back upon the plain closing on the enemy which had thus broken their centre the athenians and plataeans who had the best of the fighting on each wing succeeded in beating off their opponents the persians were now in full flight and the greeks slaughtering them in the pursuit until they reached the sea tried to set their ships on fire in this struggle fell the polymarch Callimachus with Stesilaus, one of the generals, and Kynegeras, the brother of the tragic poet Aeschylus. Kynegeras, it is said, had his hand cut off when he had seized 
the stern ornament of one of the Persian ships. In this way the Athenians took seven ships, with the rest the barbarians beat out to sea and sailed around Sunian, wishing to reach the city before the Athenians could return to it. But the Athenians hurried back with all speed and reached Athens first. The barbarians lay for a while with their ships off Phaleron, which at that time was the port of Athens, and then sailed back to Asia. The Spartans set out, Herodotus tells us, when the moon was full, reaching Attica on the third day after they left Sparta, a feat which for a large force is more astounding even than the exploit of Pheidippides. But although they were too late for the battle, they still wished to look upon the Medes. So they went to Marathon and saw them, and having praised the Athenians for all that they had done, went home again. As to the Persian king, he had been bitter enough against the Athenians because they had taken Sardis, but the tale of the battle of Marathon filled him with so fierce a rage that he ordered preparations on a vastly larger scale for an invasion which it should be impossible for any earthly power to withstand. For three years the whole empire was astir, but then came the revolt of Egypt, and not many months later Darius himself died, without being able to chastise either the Egyptians or the Athenians, and leaving both these tasks to his son Xerxes. This is the epical, or rather the religious form, into which Herodotus has thrown a history, the splendor of which can never be diminished. The great question of freedom or tyranny for Europe generally was settled on the field of Marathon, for it cannot be doubted that this battle decided the issue of the subsequent invasion of Xerxes, and the glory of this victory belonged altogether to the men of Athens, and of the little Boeotian town of Plataea. The actual numbers engaged on either side, the precise positions of the combatants and the exact tactics of the fight, are by comparison points of very secondary importance. The story relates to a time for which we have confessedly no contemporary narrative, and it has its full tale of marvels, as well as of difficulties wholly unconnected with what are termed supernatural causes. The old heroes of the land rise to mingle in the strife, while living men do battle with superhuman strength and courage. According to the traditional accounts, no cavalry took part in the struggle, but every night from that time forth might be heard the neighing of phantom horses and the clashing of swords and spears, and the peasants would have it, that the man who went to listen from mere prying curiosity would get no good, while the daimones bore no grudge against the wayfarer who might find himself accidentally belated in the field. No other alternative is open to us than to look at the traditions of the battle in all their details, and see how far they yield us a clear and coherent narrative. The march of Miltiades and his colleagues from Athens and their victorious return are indisputable facts. The only question is as to the interval of time which separated these two events, and this is a question of extreme importance. We are told on the one side that some four days or more passed after the arrival of the Athenians at Marathon before Miltiades issued orders for the fight. On the other hand, we are told that the adherents of Hippias in Athens 
had agreed with their former master to raise a white shield on some conspicuous point probably on the summit of mount pentelicas as the signal that the persians should at once begin an attack on the city which they would second to the best of their power herodotus further assures us that this shield was actually raised and he insists on this fact as lying beyond dispute although he allows that everything else connected with it is utterly uncertain with the exception of one more important circumstance namely that it was raised when the persians were already in their ships after their defeat in other words that it was raised too late we cannot then doubt that the intention of the traitors was to give the sign before any battle could be fought and in all likelihood to prevent the fighting of any battle at marathon hence the plan arranged by them would be simply this that the signal should be made so soon as the athenian army had left the gates of the city that it should be exhibited from a point at which it should not be seen by the athenians on their march and that as soon as it should be exhibited the real attack of the persians should be made on the defenceless city while at marathon sufficient forces should remain to keep the athenians on the ground until the work at athens should be completed a simpler and a wiser plan could as we have already said scarcely have been formed but its success depended entirely on the punctuality of its execution and it was precisely on this point that the plan was wrecked if as we seem forced to conclude the debates and the delay of the athenian generals belong to the time which preceded the beginning of the march it follows that miltiades left the city with the fixed purpose of fighting an immediate battle and of returning as soon as might be possible probably not forty-eight hours passed from the moment of his leaving the gates to the time of his re-entering them that he or his men saw the white shield we are not expressly told but the delay in raising it might allow the athenian army to reach a spot from which it might become visible to them and this might urge them to even greater speed although it may have produced a different result End of section thirteen section fourteen of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami miltiades part three if the debates of the athenian generals took place at athens we may safely infer that they did not leave the city until they felt that the moment had come for rapid and decisive action their long-continued hesitation may have arisen from the consciousness that the partisans of hippias were intriguing and plotting for the restoration of their master and the success of his allies and when at length they made up their mind to leave the city they must have done so because they felt that they must at all hazards confront the persian host which still lay encamped at marathon the inference is that they were not unaware of the conspiracy and therefore that the sight of the white shield would not come upon them altogether as a surprise before they saw it they may have been far advanced on the road and the battle must have begun before the persians appointed to go round to phaleron could by any possibility reach it 
we may take at its worth whatever it be the conjecture that the athenian assault at marathon took place when all the persian cavalry and a large portion of the persian infantry were on board the ships which were to convey them to phaleron for the attack on the city in this case the pisistratid conspiracy was productive only of disaster to the cause of hippias for it so far weakened the persian army as to render possible its defeat by the athenians under miltiades the forces embarked in the ships had not time to surprise athens and the forces left were insufficient to withstand the athenian onset and tactics at marathon but on any supposition the idea of long-continued inaction on the field becomes untenable the only object for raising the white shield was to warn the Persians that the Athenians had left the city. The act would have been superfluous and ridiculous when they could actually see the Athenians drawn out in array in front of them. They would know at once that the conditions which they had been most anxious to bring about were actually realized, and the inaction of the Athenians would thus have ensured the success of the plot for restoring the Pisistridae. The idea that the Persian leaders would allow a handful of men to make them stand at bay for days together, unless they had a motive for so doing, cannot be entertained for a moment. Their business was to do their master's bidding with the least waste of time, and the story of their recent actions at Naxos and Eretria would certainly not warrant the notion that they would stand looking idly on until it pleased the athenians to advance to the attack the emphatic assertion of herodotus that beyond the fact of the raising of the shield he knew nothing of the business would of itself show that he did not believe the charge which ascribed the act to the alcmyonidae but he dismisses the accusation with vehement scorn chilon may have been harshly and unfairly dealt with although this must remain a matter of opinion merely but to the Alcmyonidae, the Athenians owed almost their very existence. By them they had been freed, it may be by not the most scrupulous means, from the yoke of Hippias, while to Cleisthenes they were indebted for those changes and developments of the Salonian constitution which rendered it an effectual safeguard against the machinations of the partisans of Hippias herodotus refers indeed to the popular sentiment about harmodius and aristogiton but he does so only to treat it with contempt all that they had done was to exasperate the kinsfolk of hipparchus whereas the alcmyonidae had shown throughout the patriotism which renders all attempts at corruption and intimidation impracticable and which herodotus compares to that of callias who bought at auction the property which Hippias left behind him when he went into exile. The story may be true, but it suggests a comparison with the auction of the goods of the Etruscan king Porsena in the Roman Forum, and the selling of the ground in Rome on which the troops for Spain were encamped, while Hannibal lay in front of the city. The hopes of Hippias had been finally dissipated by the victory of his old friend that friend was now the most distinguished of all athenian citizens he had won for himself an imperishable name in the great battle 
in which Aeschylus fought by the side of his brother Kinegeras, and which was afterwards depicted on the Poikile, or beautiful porch at Athens. He had returned to Athens with a reputation greatly raised by his conquest of Lemnos. He had now attained a preeminence such as no Athenian had reached before him, and he seems to have been somewhat dizzied by the height on which he stood. The winning of the great battle had left him with the conviction that in smaller enterprises success might be regarded as certain, and with this was joined the further conviction that he might absolutely trust his own judgment. Strong in this assurance, he appeared before the people and told them that if they would follow his guidance, he would make them rich for ever. Of the nature of the enterprise in which he wished to engage them, he would say nothing. All that he asked was whether they would furnish ships, money, and men for an expedition as to which he would enter into no details. The Athenians also, we must suppose, had had their heads a little turned by their recent success, and perhaps still more by their sudden deliverance from overwhelming anxiety. Six and forty nations, it is said, had faced them on the field of Marathon. But the black cloud which thus threatened their country had been broken, and scattered seemingly forever. Surely they could go on now in the assurance of achieving whatever task they might take in hand, and so far as we may see, they never stopped to think that a state or nation cannot transfer its responsibility to any individual man, however much they may look on him as deserving implicit confidence. The people at once did what Miltiades asked, and Miltiades, sailing to Paras, an island lying a few miles to the west of Naxos, laid siege to the city, threatening to destroy it unless they paid forthwith the sum of one hundred talents. His ostensible reason for making this crushing demand was that the Parians had furnished a ship for the Persian fleet at Marathon. But Herodotus believed that he was really actuated by a personal grudge against a Parian named Lysagoras for slandering him to the Persian general Hydarnes. The explanation seems, to say the least, strange. The slander, if there was any slander, would scarcely deserve his notice, and after his great victory he might look upon it with satisfaction, if not with pride. But if he counted on the wealth of Lysagoras and his fellow-citizens, he was to be disappointed. The Parians had not the means for making the payment. Putting Miltiades off from day to day under various pretenses, they so strengthened their walls by working at night as to be enabled soon to set him at defiance. In the stage then reached by military art and skill, the balance of success inclined greatly in favour of the besieged, and after a blockade of six-and-twenty days, Miltiades was compelled to return to Athens, having utterly failed in his enterprise and having severely strained his thigh or his knee. This injury the Parians accounted for by saying that Miltiades, perplexed and irritated by the prolongation of the blockade, entered into a treaty with Timo, a priestess of the Chthonian or Infernal Gods, who assured him of victory if he would follow her counsels. But to do this it was necessary to see her in person. 
he therefore went up to the hill in front of the town and being unable to open the gate leaped the hedge of the temenos or sacred ground of demeter on reaching the doors of the temple he lost his presence of mind altogether and rushing back in deadly fright hurt his thigh as he jumped from the stone fence for the treachery thus contemplated the parians wished to put timo to death but the delphian god whose sanction they asked told them that she was only a servant in the hands of the fate which was hurrying miltiades to his doom the victor of marathon returned to athens only to find himself the object of a general indignation which expressed itself by a capital charge brought against him by xanthippus the father of the great pericles who by his marriage with agariste the granddaughter of the siconian cleisthenes was connected with the alcmyonidae unable to walk or even to speak miltiades was carried on a bed into the presence of his judges before whom his friends made the best defence or offered the best excuses that they could the charge was one which could not be rebutted directly and before a court of democratic judges they could not with prudence venture to urge that in being misled the people were really the greater offenders but if an acquittal might not be hoped for the penalty might be mitigated and thus we learn that the suit against miltiades was what was called an agon temetas or a trial for an offence for which the punishment was not definitely fixed by the law his friends pleaded that a fine of fifty talents would probably cover the expenses of the expedition from which they had hoped to reap unbounded wealth and this penalty was inflicted on the man but for whom athens might perhaps have been at that moment the seat of a persian satrapy in a similar suit socrates brought on himself the death penalty by declaring that the proper recompense for his career would be a public maintenance during life in the pritaneion or chamber for the entertainment of guests honoured by the state had this claim been made for miltiades it would have been followed probably by the same result and his death which the mortification of his thigh or knee brought on him a few hours or a few days later would not less effectually than the hemlock juice have left his son cymon free from the heavy burden which the athenians suffered him to discharge in 489 b c miltiades died in disgrace and the citizens whom he wished to enrich recovered from his family half the sum which he failed to exact from the parians but the silence of herodotus is a strong argument against the statements of cornelius nepos and plutarch that he was put into prison and died there and the words of the geographer posanius might almost warrant the belief that his ashes were laid in the tomb raised to his memory at marathon the catastrophe which closed the career of this great general has given rise to a long conflict of opinion on the one side we have a statesman who insists on his countrymen following him in an enterprise of the nature of which they are said to be profoundly ignorant but this statesman is one to whom they owe a debt of the deepest gratitude on the other we have a body of citizens who are thus lured into an unprofitable if not a disastrous undertaking 
but they make themselves partakers of his guilt or his folly by their own deliberate act these charges of fraud and deception on the one hand and of fickleness levity and ingratitude on the other have been placed in the scales of a balance which is made to incline in accordance with the political prepossessions of the judge the impulse to side with an individual against the aggregate of citizens is both general and strong but the fact nevertheless remains that the greatest services can confer no title on any one to break the law it follows that the winning of the victory at marathon could not justify miltiades in leading his countrymen blindfolded into ruin it is also almost beyond dispute that levity and ingratitude are not the besetting sins of democracies generally and the demos of athens might far more reasonably be charged with faults of a precisely opposite nature again and again the athenians brought upon themselves grave and in some instances irremediable disasters because in spite of evidence pointing to incapacity or demerit they refused to withdraw the confidence bestowed on men who had won for themselves a fair reputation for integrity there were in fact many cases in which they retained in office from this feeling men whom it was at once their interest and duty forthwith to dismiss but when the current of opinion in a democracy is really changed the change is likely to be avowed in vehement tones and angry language and such language may be taken as evidence of ingratitude when the offender real or supposed is a man eminent for former services at athens assuredly the dangerous tendency was rather to an uncriticizing and excessive submission to the will of the popular leaders but it is also true that the athenians in many instances displayed a disposition to shrink from responsibility which was by no means creditable to them and in the same measure they were reluctant to take to themselves any blame for results to which they had deliberately contributed we shall find them hereafter condemning their generals or their statesmen for the result of their own verdict or of undertakings to which they had given their well-considered sanction in these later instances they knew indeed what the enterprise was to which they were committing themselves in the case of miltiades they are represented as knowing nothing about it still whatever may have been the hopes and the enthusiasm of miltiades it must be allowed that no state or people can under any circumstances be justified in engaging the strength of the country in enterprises with the nature of which they have not been made acquainted the english would have been no more justified in so following the duke of wellington after the battle of waterloo and if they had so followed him the fault in case of failure would have been quite as much theirs as his in short the athenians do not come off with clean hands in the business and a careful examination of the story seems to show that their ignorance was rather a veil thrown over a line of action which as being unsuccessful they were disposed to regard as discreditable and that in the scheme itself they were rather the accomplices than the dupes of miltiades 
we shall find themistocles making a few years later a similar attempt but that attempt was successful and it was accepted eagerly as the earnest of a wide imperial sway for athens in the future no one indeed can suppose that the whole plan of miltiades was confined to the expedition to paros and the paltry demand of a hundred talents such a sum would scarcely have enriched a hundred athenians far less have rendered them all wealthy there can be no doubt that the scheme which miltiades had in his mind was the same as that which themistocles actually carried out after the battle of salamis and that paros was merely the first island on which the attempt was made in short miltiades was going on an expedition by which he thought to increase the revenue and to establish the naval supremacy of athens it is not easy therefore to think that the athenians were quite so ignorant of the object of his errand as they pretended to be or at the least as they are said to have been but when they chose to say that they had been led blindfolded into the plan it was clearly dangerous for miltiades or his friends to contradict them on a point on which they could not but be very sore regarded thus the case of miltiades is not altogether unlike that of sir walter raleigh End of section fourteen Section 15 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Aristides, Part 1. Aristides, the son of Lysimachus, is known preeminently as the rival of Themistocles. But it is a mistake to suppose that their relations through life were those of mere antagonism they represented severally two very different conditions of thought but it has been universally admitted that on the part of aristides at least there was no disposition to run any theory to extremes while there was further a constant readiness to learn the new lessons which the altered circumstances of the time might suggest or enforce it is on this account that we may do well to consider his career separately although when we come to deal with themistocles we shall find that the same readiness to learn was combined in the latter with a not less earnest desire to promote the good of his country and with a far deeper insight into the character of the measures which the interests of his country required but from the outset it was perfectly clear that the party to which aristides belonged and which claimed him as their special champion would take ample care of his reputation while they would do their best to depreciate and perhaps to ruin that of the man whom they looked upon as simply his opponent towards the achievement of this purpose their power and their opportunities were undoubtedly great they belonged to an exclusive and privileged order and such literature as then existed had grown up under their protection or their patronage the public records and documents were all virtually in their hands and a tradition shaped by them had a far better chance of permanence than the floating fancies of the common herd who had not yet learnt to appreciate their own power 
and importance in the state. It was certain, therefore, that the man who set himself to improve the condition of those who were despised as rabble would receive but scant indulgence at their hands, while another man, who, like Aristides, never denied his attachment to the dominant order in the state, would be judged both leniently and partially. Aristides, however, deserves all the credit due to a citizen who carries reforms distasteful to the great Eupatrid families, these reforms relating, in some instances, to matters on which the future greatness of Athens mainly depended. It was not indeed likely that he would see the need of these reforms at the outset of his career. At no time of his life had he much liking for the nautic rabble, who were most of all eager in demanding and pushing on democratic changes, and before the invasion of Xerxes, it was impossible for him to know how great a part these men would play in the deliverance of Athens and of Europe from Persian slavery. In his earlier years, he would therefore appear to Themistocles only as a man who was opposed, and beyond doubt conscientiously opposed, to what in his eyes were the real interests of Athens. The two rivals fought together at Marathon. Aristides commanded the men of his own tribe, and was left in charge of the spoil when Miltiades hurried back from the battlefield to disconcert the intrigues of Hippias with the traitors within the city. In the following year he was chosen as one of the archons, and this fact proves that whatever may have been his poverty later on, he belonged at this time to the wealthiest class of Athenian citizens, according to the Timocratic Constitution of Solon. Six years now passed away without any very startling incidents. But the tedious and uninteresting feud or struggle between Athens and Aegina convinced Themistocles, as it failed to convince Aristides, that in neglecting her navy, Athens was committing herself to a suicidal policy. The Athenians had friends in the city of Aegina who were ready to aid them in the conquest of the island, but they came just a day too late. They had no fleet which they could venture to oppose to the Aeginetan navy, and time was lost in bargaining with the Corinthians for a sufficient number of ships. That Athens should be thus dependent on another, and that a Dorian city, for the means of fighting her own battles was for Themistocles an intolerable humiliation. He had, and could have, no moral doubt that the attempt defeated at Marathon would be repeated on a larger scale. How soon it was impossible to say but there is no reason for supposing that the misgivings and anxieties of Themistocles were shared by Aristides, and if they were not shared by him, the two statesmen would indeed be separated by an impassable gulf. But both exercised a wide influence, and under the present political conditions at Athens, their antagonism might involve serious danger to the state. The crisis was one which seemed to call for the Cleisthenian remedy of ostracism, and the votes being taken, 
showed that the majority of the Athenians desired the banishment of Aristides, B.C. 482. That their decision turned on his opposition to the maritime policy of Themistocles, there can be no question. Aristides was, it is said, conspicuous for a virtue which Greek statesmen have for the most part signally and fatally lacked. Bribes had for him no temptation and he was therefore known emphatically as the righteous or the just. But that a man should be driven to exile, as some have supposed, that Aristides was driven, because he was free from a prevalent vice, seems unlikely. The ascription of this epithet to any one man exclusively implies the corruption of the leading citizens generally, and therefore it would be comparatively easy for Aristides to gain the reputation of which the rustic, who asked him to write the name of Aristides on the shirt or shell, professed himself so tired of hearing. More has been made of this slight incident than it deserved. His integrity would undoubtedly attract the main body of the people to a man who had been the friend of Cleisthenes, but not much weight can be attached to the praises of the Rhodian poet Timocrian who extolled the righteousness of Aristides in order that he might hold up to public contempt the falsehood and ingratitude of his rival. Timocrian was an exile from the town of Iolysos, and he asserted that Themistocles had deliberately broken or forgotten his promise to bring about his restoration. If the promise was made, it is possible that the power of Themistocles to fulfill it was not equal to his will. In losing Aristides, Athens, we may admit, lost a citizen superior to his rival in general morality. But his ostracism is significant chiefly as affirming the adoption of the new policy in opposition to the old conservative or eupatrid theory that the navy was the seedbed of novelty and change that there was a danger in divided or conflicting councils on such subjects as these was frankly allowed by Aristides, when he said that if the Athenians were wise, they would throw both Themistocles and himself into the chasm which served as a burying place for the bodies of criminals. Three years later the storm of Persian invasion burst with full force on western Hellas. Aristides had done nothing to promote those measures which Themistocles regarded as indispensable for the safety of Athens and of Greece. But this was no time for fostering personal animosity, if he had, indeed, ever felt it. We are expressly told by Plutarch, and in this instance we have no reason for discrediting the statement, that the ostracism of Aristides and other exiles had been revoked on the approach of the Persian army and fleet, at the urgent desire of Themistocles himself. Probably Aristides, in his turn, was now convinced that the issue of the struggle must be determined at sea, at least as much as on land. In the presence of an enemy, overwhelming in numbers, it was difficult to bring the men of many independent cities to act together and to strike promptly, and Themistocles was resolved, when the Persian fleet approached the Salaminian waters, that the vacillation of the Greek commanders should be brought to an end. 
his purpose was effectually carried out by means of a message sent by Sicanos to the Persian leaders, and Themistocles was already aware, probably, that escape without fighting was no longer possible, when he was suddenly summoned from the council to speak with his old opponent, who had just crossed over from Aegina. Leaving his colleagues in fierce dissension, he learnt with intense satisfaction from Aristides that the question of retreat was one which could no longer be discussed. Aristides knew from his own knowledge that the Greek fleet was surrounded beyond all chance of escape. In few words, Themistocles assured him that the movements of the Persian fleet had been caused by the message sent from himself through Sicanos, but he begged Aristides to repeat before the council tidings which, coming from him, might be believed by them. Even thus the announcement was all but rejected as false, when a Tenian vessel, deserting from the Persian fleet, established the truth beyond doubt. Such is the story told by Herodotus of the meeting of the two antagonists. The fact may be received without hesitation. But if Plutarch be right, Herodotus is altogether mistaken in representing Aristides as a man who breaks his banishment and faces the risk involved in violating the sentence passed on him. Herodotus did not know that the decree of banishment had been cancelled at the prayer of Themistocles himself. But there were others among them, the rhetorician Isocrates, who knew nothing of any message sent by Themistocles to the Persian commanders. The latter had landed a large force on the islet of Cytinea, which lies at the eastern end of the narrow strait between the island of Salamis and the opposite coast of Attica. In this narrow strait the battle was to be fought, and the men on the islet were to be the executioners of such of the defeated Greeks as might venture to land upon it. The fight ended, as with such vast numbers in a confined space it could scarcely fail to end, in inextricable confusion for the Persian host. And in the midst of the frightful turmoil which followed the effort to retreat, Aristides, landing a large force of heavy-armed troops on Cytalea, slew every one of the Persians who were upon it. With this terrible massacre, the battle, which effectually quelled the courage of Xerxes, came to an end. B.C. 480. In the following year, B.C. 479, Aristides was among the strategoi or generals who were to prosecute the war on land. The task was not an easy one. The Persian commander held out proffers, which must, he thought, be irresistibly tempting to the Athenians, and the Spartans were besieging the Athenians with entreaties to persist manfully in defense of the common cause. The replies of the Athenians to their enemies and their allies are said to have been suggested by Aristides. They are full of beauty and spirit, but they are far from being consistent with the history of previous or of subsequent events. In the memorable battle fought near Plataea, the Macedonian chief or king plays the part which Aristides had played before, that of Salamis, going by night to the quarters of the Athenian generals. He tells them that Mardonius has made up his mind to fight on the coming day, but that even if he should fail to attack, 
it would be their wisdom to remain where they were, as the Persian supplies were all but exhausted. If the war end, he added, as ye would have it, remember to deliver me also. I am Alexandros the Macedonian. Aristides, at least, could not have needed this announcement. He must have remembered the man who but a little while ago had appeared in Athens as the envoy of Mardonius, and had then urged submission to Xerxes as jealously as he now urged the duty of a persevering resistance. Learning from Aristides that the decisive struggle must be begun in a few hours, the Spartan general Pausanias, we are told, begged Aristides and his colleagues to change places with him. You, he said, have encountered these Persians at Marathon, and know their method of fighting. We have had no such experience, for no Spartan has yet been engaged with the Medes. The story goes on to say that Aristides eagerly carried out, at the prayer of Pausanias, an arrangement which he had earnestly desired, yet scarcely dared to propose, that Mardonius, becoming aware of the change, likewise altered the disposition of his troops, that seeing this, Pisanius returned to his former ground, and that the Persians being brought back to their old position, they were again just as they had been before the conference with Aristides. In other words, whether the report be true or not, the incident is as superfluous as are others which we have already had to notice. End of section 15. Section 16 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Aristides, Part 2. But the story is a manifest fiction. Spartans had fought with Persians at Thermopylae at Artemisian and at Salamis, and in each place they had conquered. For if we follow the traditional narrative, the struggle at Thermopylae was for them a splendid victory. But the picture is also a fiction with a purpose which the author has done his best to conceal. His wish was to glorify Athens by making Pausanias admit the superiority of the Athenian forces, but if he had said that the Spartans fought on the left wing, the story would have found its way to Sparta, where it would have been received with a storm of indignation. By bringing the Spartans back to their former position before the fight begins, this danger would be avoided. Few Spartans would hear the tale, and as it left untouched the fact for which alone they would care, they would not think it worth while to bestow much thought upon it. The story, therefore, described the changes as effected during the night, and none but the Athenians would be any the wiser for it. In this great battle, Aristides was the worthy leader of men who succeeded in convincing the Persians that the task of conquering the western Greeks was hopeless. If he needed or wished for military glory, he had it to the full. From this time onwards his conduct is marked by a wisdom and prudence equal to his high-mindedness. By his advice the Plataeans were declared autonomous, or in other words were freed from all connection with the Boeotian confederacy, and eighty talents were bestowed on them from the spoil 
to enable them to celebrate fitly the annual commemoration feast, to keep up the tombs, and to build a temple to Athena. With Themistocles, Aristides acted in perfect harmony. It is not indeed likely that he would be attracted by the plan, which beyond doubt suggested itself to Themistocles, of abandoning the old Athens altogether and establishing the city at the great harbour of Piraeus. A measure so revolutionary could scarcely be expected from such a man. But he would be perhaps even more determined than Themistocles himself that Athens should be enabled to maintain her independence effectually, not merely against the attacks of foreign enemies, but against the jealousy of any Greek states. This independence could, under the conditions of ancient life, be secured only by adequate fortifications, and the raising of these works without provoking the interference of Sparta was a difficult and delicate task with which he knew that Themistocles was preeminently qualified to deal. But although the sagacity and subtlety which marked the action of Themistocles would have been looked for in vain from Aristides, the latter was zealous and earnest in the support of his colleague. Without such support and hearty cooperation, the embassy of Themistocles to Sparta must have failed and Aristides deserves all the credit due to the man who saved Athens from such a calamity. But the thoroughness with which he had learnt the lessons taught by the events of his political life was shown in the constitutional changes which of his own free will he came forward to propose toward the end of his career. These events had all tended to give a vast impulse to the growth of democratic feeling. They had brought continually into greater prominence the naval multitude, for whom at first he had felt no great liking, and it was impossible to keep the men who had had the chief share in winning the victories which shattered the fleets of Xerxes, contented with the measure of prestige secured to them by the Cleisthenian constitution. By that constitution, all Athenian citizens had received the right of voting in the election of magistrates, and their judicial education was ensured by the arrangements of the dicasteria or jury courts belonging to the Heliaea. But the members of the fourth orthetic class, which comprised the great majority of Athenians, was still ineligible for the archonship. This restriction Aristides now came forward to remove, B.C. 467, and for doing this he had two reasons. The first was the desire of doing justice to a large body of men who had showed themselves deserving of confidence. The issue of the conflict with Persia had, according to the emphatic assertion of Herodotus, been determined solely by the energy and self-sacrifice of the whole body of Athenians, and the conviction had forced itself on Aristides that there was no excuse for excluding from the highest offices of the state even the poorest of the citizens who had done their duty bravely and steadily in that supreme struggle. It must, however, be remembered that he was simply abolishing a restriction, and the poor were not often elected merely because they were eligible. His second reason was his discovery 
that the functions of the archons had been gradually reduced to the level of the capacities of ordinary citizens and where this was the case it was quite certain that ordinary citizens would sooner or later be declared capable of discharging them in truth we can scarcely doubt that he was prepared for the further change which would determine the election of the archons by lot though he must at the same time have foreseen that this change would inevitably overthrow the predominance of the court of areopagus ten years before he carried this reform aristides had taken the most prominent part in the formation of the great delian confederacy b c 477 which had for its object the extinction of persian supremacy within the limits of the continental and sporadic hellas this confederacy was rendered possible only by the naval power of athens and aristides must have been well aware that if it had rested upon himself that power would never have been developed and that the result would in all likelihood have been not the defeat of xerxes but his complete success this consciousness would only make him now that this naval supremacy was established the more resolute in doing all that he could to enable athens and the whole hellenic world to derive the utmost benefits from it the conduct of sparta had been such as to repel in a special degree the asiatic greeks notoriously in the case of posanius and not in this case only sparta had shown itself incapable of maintaining its authority over its own servants it was generally behindhand in giving aid when aid was most urgently needed and as a maritime power sparta was miserably inefficient but only a maritime power could deal with the affairs of the asiatic greeks who almost immediately after the great victories which virtually closed the war with xerxes entreated aristides to admit them into direct relations with athens it was in truth abundantly clear that the greek world was now divided into two sections the one gravitating to sparta as the land power the other to athens as having the command of the sea but athens could not yet afford to give any wanton offence to sparta and therefore we cannot put faith in the story told by plutarch that it was by the direct suggestion of aristides himself that some ionian vessels attacked the ships of posanius in the harbour of byzantion and thus made a reconciliation between athens and sparta impossible but although this tale looks like a fiction it is undoubtedly true that when a spartan commission came out to supersede posanius they were met by a determined passive resistance where they had looked for ready submission and their withdrawal from a field in which they had not the power of enforcing their own decrees left the confederacy of the asiatic greeks with athens an accomplished fact they made indeed a virtue of necessity by affecting satisfaction in the thought that athens was willing to carry out a task which for themselves had become irksome and costly the arrangement of the conditions for this new confederacy was a work imposed on aristides the matter needed careful handling the purpose of the confederacy was not merely self-defence 
the persian power was to be rooted out at all events from the western half of lesser asia and this task might involve the active warfare of many years it became necessary therefore to fix the amount of contributions in ships money and men to be provided by each member of the confederation in support of the common cause the sum total of the assessment on the allies fixed by aristides amounted to four hundred and sixty talents but of the items which composed it we know nothing that it was accepted as just and equitable to all we may reasonably infer from the fact that the management of the fund was entrusted to officers called hellenotamii or treasurers elected by the allies generally who met on terms of perfect equality in the sacred island of delos the disputes jealousies and changes which subsequently affected this confederation do not belong to the life of aristides it was impossible for him to foresee at starting the part which would be played by some or many of the asiatic greeks or that athens would be compelled to insist on perseverance in war when her allies had grown weary of active exertion for the athenians when this change came there was no alternative they were compelled if they regarded their own safety to finish the enterprise which they had taken in hand and as the allies generally could not be trusted for hardy support in this work it became necessary to transfer the treasury of the confederation from delos to athens aristides was according to one tradition still living when the transference took place and pronounced it unjust as well as inexpedient the statement may be true but we may be sure that he could not have wished to leave in the hands of unwilling or faithless allies the power of wrecking that maritime empire of athens on which the safety and freedom of the whole greek world depended this was seemingly the last task in the useful and honourable life of aristides he died it would seem about eight or nine years after the establishment of the delian confederacy circa b c four sixty eight but beyond this there is little that we can accept without question from the stories related of his last days some said that he died at athens others that he fell fighting in battles somewhere on the coasts of the black sea there seems to be a general agreement that he died in poverty and the tale ran that he had not left money enough to pay even for his own funeral assuredly he had not been so poor always he could not have been elected archon had he not belonged to the wealthiest class of athenian citizens if as it is said he was buried at the public expense at phaleron the honour was fully deserved nor can much fault be found with the athenians if they granted a large sum of money to his son and gave dowries for his daughters but although the athenian eupatrids dealt gently with his reputation there were not wanting some who called the incorruptibility even of aristides into question and stories were told that he too being unable to pay a heavy fine on a conviction for taking bribes made his escape to the land where themistocles afterwards found a shelter and that there he died 
between such tales and the tradition of his poverty there is a manifest inconsistency but these darker shadows thrown across the career even of a man like aristides may help us to understand the causes which led to the heavier condemnation meted out to his more successful and perhaps less scrupulous rival themistocles End of section sixteen section seventeen of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami themistocles part one the history of themistocles is virtually the history not of athens only but of the greek world generally throughout the whole period of his career the constitutional changes effected by solon and subsequent reformers were manifestly signs of a great quickening in the political aspirations of the people and pointed to a rapid growth in their powers of thought which could not fail to show itself in the rising of some one man of commanding intellect and influence themistocles was a man who would have risen to eminence in any age or country his resolute enthusiasm combined with a singular coolness in the adaptation of means to ends and with an intensity of conviction which never left him in any doubt of the course to be pursued fitted him more especially for dealing with a supreme crisis such as that in which athens fought not merely her own battle but that of the whole western world he had seen from the first what the political growth of the athenian people must be he had learnt that eupatrid ascendancy was a thing of the past he was aware of the changes which were needed to make the force of his countrymen adequate to the tasks which they might have to fulfil he carried out their changes without flinching and so when the time came he was ready to face with them the whole power of the persian despot the birth of themistocles took place probably about b c five fourteen four years before the expulsion of hippias from athens his father naocles had like miltiades married a thracian woman or as some said carian but he could not like miltiades boast of a descent from gods and heroes there is however no sign that themistocles bestowed any thought on the comparative obscurity of his origin the most marked characteristics of his boyhood were we are told a singular impetuosity and energy which drew from his teachers the remark that his career was not likely to be insignificant and that he would be something great be it good or bad but not much trust can be placed in details which look as if they might have been put together in after years instead of joining in the amusements of his companions he may have spent most of his time alone in making speeches to imaginary audiences and he may without greatly heeding them have listened to the warnings of his father who pointed to some worn-out galleys cast away on the seashore as emblems of the fate in store for popular political leaders naocles might with equal chance of success have striven to quell his ambition 
by reminding him as according to eastern practice despots were reminded that the greatest and mightiest must die like other men whatever may have been the precocity of themistocles in childhood and youth he was approaching the time of mature manhood before his genius shone out in its full lustre he had reached it would seem his twenty-fourth year when he fought along with his rival aristides in the battle of marathon although there is no reason for supposing that he was like aristides the general of his tribe that he was deeply impressed by this memorable fight is beyond doubt that his countrymen generally understood the nature of the impression made on him is by no means so clear the story is again told that after the battle he withdrew himself from his usual society it is added that being questioned about it he replied that the trophy of miltiades would not let him sleep it is far more likely that he was occupied with the causes of the struggle than with the results thus far achieved assuredly he did not envy miltiades as a general whose exploits on the field could not be surpassed he was probably more struck by the raising of the white shield than by any occurrences in the battle itself or even by its issue that signal was for him the key to all that had passed since the expulsion of hippias or even for some time before it the general conviction of the athenians was that the defeat at marathon was the end of the contest with persia themistocles felt assured that they were utterly mistaken and that his own work lay in preparing his countrymen and the greek cities generally for the fiercer struggle which must finally decide the issue seven years later the ostracism of aristides left themistocles without a rival at athens that ostracism was meant as we have seen to serve as a protest against the policy which sought to repress the naval development of the city and in the carrying out of the counter-policy themistocles displayed a genius which had never been approached by any greek statesman and which has rarely if ever been surpassed by statesmen of any country or age that throughout the career which began practically with the banishment of his rival he strove to advance the true interests of his country has never been disputed but his services to athens are not impaired even if it be proved that he was resolved by furthering those interests to secure also his own greatness he started with a bare competence he became wealthy or as some would have it amassed even an enormous fortune we shall see later on what may be the value of the stories which have gathered round this tradition they may be taken as proving that the character of themistocles was by no means perfect but the same judgment may be passed on oliver cromwell or warren hastings or clive and of these three the last suffered under precisely the same charges which blackened the reputation of themistocles the questions which we have to answer turn on the sources whence these charges came on the designs which they were intended to further and on the weight to be attached to the minuteness and circumstantiality with which they were urged 
but the verdict even of the most adverse judges on the closing scenes of his life does not affect the picture drawn of him by the historian thucydides this picture exhibits him as a man endowed with a wonderful power of discerning the true relations of things and with a seemingly intuitive knowledge of the means by which the worst complications might be unravelled he went we are told straight to his mark while yet if he pleased he could keep that mark hidden from every one and so when aristides came to tell him before the battle of salamis that the greek fleet was surrounded beyond all possibility of escape he could answer calmly that the deadlock was one entirely of his own making with the life and the exploits of such a man popular fancy would soon be busy imputing to him qualities scarcely to be looked for in a human being the belief grew up that he knew every citizen of athens by name and in the time of aristagoras herodotus had given their number as eighty thousand thucydides goes on to tell us that by his astonishing apprehension and foresight he was enabled to form the truest judgment of existing things and without toilsome calculation to forecast the future while yet no man was ever more free from the foolhardy temper which hopes to make up for want of experience and of thought by mere dash and bravery there was in short no haphazard valour in themistocles whose character we should utterly misconceive if we attributed to him the confidence of an untrained and impetuous mind no man we are assured ever had a more clearly defined policy and no man could enforce his policy with more luminous persuasiveness but themistocles did not choose always so to enforce it and therefore at a time when it was impossible to weld into one compact body an army made up of men almost fatally deficient in powers of combination and cohesion he was compelled to take many a step which to those who served under him might seem to have little or no justification in law if he knew what was good or hurtful for them better than they knew themselves he would not allow technical or legal scruples to withhold him from measures which must be carried out at once and decisively or not at all the victory at marathon had been preceded by a tedious and uninteresting contest with the Aegeanetans. The result for Athens was as unsatisfactory and humiliating as that of the struggle with Megara for the possession of Salamis in the days of Solon. For Themistocles, it must have been especially exasperating to see that Athens could not hold her own against the inhabitants of a petty island close to their own great harbour with any fleet of her own raising and that she must be the suitor of a dorian city before she could confront them with an adequate force even thus the athenians were defeated losing four ships with their crews these failures and rebuffs removed all hesitation from the mind of themistocles the battle of marathon had shown him how much the army of a single hellenic city for Athens had here been aided only by the one thousand allies from Plataea, could do against the loose discipline and weaker zeal of barbarian troops. 
the lack of success in the war with the Aegeanetans convinced him that the most urgent need for Athens was the development of her maritime power. Henceforth, the naval greatness of Athens became the one end on which all his efforts were concentrated. This determination widened, no doubt, the gulf which at this time separated him from Aristides, and may have contributed to bring about the banishment of the latter. However this may have been, the event was one on which Themistocles was not likely to waste any vain regrets. His business was to prepare for the storm which he knew was coming. It was to the last degree unlikely that the young Persian king Xerxes should abandon the design on which his father Darius had set his heart, and the failure of the Athenians in the contest with the Aegeanetans would furnish him with an irresistible argument for preparing to encounter the immeasurably more formidable power of the Persian despot. He could assure them that this mighty power would be directed especially against themselves. The impulse given to Persian conquest in Europe, if we put aside the strange tale of the Scythian expedition of Darius, had come from their own expelled tyrant Hippias. Under his advice, the misty projects of the Persian king had taken shape as a definite and coherent scheme. From Hippias, his satraps had learned that the only opposition really to be feared must come from Athens, that the Athenians alone were beginning to feel that they were in duty bound to guard not their own interests only, but those of the whole Hellenic race, and that if their existence could be overcome, the Dorian states could be dealt with as isolated units which would never combine persistently to arrest the progress of the Persian arms. Of these facts, the results of two embassies sent from Athens to Artaphernes furnished ample evidence, and their refusal to receive Hippias as a tributary of the Persian king had indeed been already treated as a virtual declaration of war. Happily for Athens, the ostracism of Aristides left to Themistocles an influence practically unopposed, and he used the short interval which yet remained before the second Persian invasion to supply the deficiencies which still threatened disaster, if not utter ruin. It is said that during the year which preceded the supreme struggle, Themistocles was archon eponymous, but although his exertions would be redoubled with the additional power thus gained, it is not likely that he now for the first time urged the adoption of the great measures which the crisis rendered necessary. If Athens was really to be paramount at sea, the foundations of her supremacy must be laid not on the shores of the open bay of Phaleron, to the east of the promontory of Munichia, but in the fortification of the three natural harbours included in the great haven of Piraeus that time was given for such preparations as were actually made was the result only of accident the indignation of darius at the defeat of his hosts on the field of marathon had awakened in him a burning desire for vengeance but his order for an expedition on a vastly larger scale was suspended first by the revolt of egypt then by his own death and lastly by the delays caused by xerxes who held 
that success must depend on the mere multiplication of numbers. Meanwhile, Athens was growing almost daily richer and stronger. The proceeds of the silver mines of Laurion, the southernmost district of Attica, were adding largely to her internal resources, and the method in which this revenue was applied seemed in the eyes of Themistocles to imply a narrowness of vision bordering on blindness. Before the days of Solon, feuds and factions had been too busy to leave time for working this source of wealth, nor is there evidence that any use was made of it during the tyranny of the Pisistratidae. But a new impulse had been given to enterprise by the reforms of Cleisthenes, and the mines had been made to yield a sum which furnished yearly ten drachmas to every Athenian citizen. This petty profit Themistocles induced the Athenians to forego. And if we take the number of the citizens as not greater than that which it had been in the days of Aristagoras, three hundred thousand drachmas was added to the funds available for strengthening the city both by land and sea. By the advice of Themistocles, this money was devoted to the building of two hundred ships to be employed against the Aegeanetans. Such was the nominal plea put forward for a measure which was to have consequences reaching immeasurably further, and Herodotus might therefore well say that this war with a small neighboring island was nothing less than the salvation of Greece. But the influence of Themistocles was no longer confined to Athens only. In other Greek cities also men's eyes were being opened to the folly and mischief of interpolitical jealousies and isolation. A council was gathered at the Isthmus of Corinth, which may be regarded as in some degree a pan-Hellenic congress, and here the need of making up existing quarrels in the face of a terrible danger threatening all alike was freely and fully acknowledged. In the presence of this peril, the Aegeanetans laid aside for the present their feud with Athens. But all that was done towards conciliation and common action served only to show how much was left undone. The summons sent out for help from Greek cities scattered throughout sporadic Hellas was wholly disregarded by some, and of all the cities taken together, the majority were medizing, or in other words, were disposed to cast in their lot with the subjects and tributaries of the Persian king. The memory of the Ionic revolt and its disastrous issue greatly depressed even those of the Greeks who were resolved not to submit to Xerxes, but they were still more cast down at the thought of the utter inadequacy of the Greek fleets to cope with the Phoenician navy of the Persian king. In this season of supreme discouragement, the great impulse to hope and action came, as Herodotus assures us, from Athens, or we may say rather from Themistocles personally. The historian, declaring emphatically that his words were forced from him by strong conviction of their truth, tells us that if the Athenians had abandoned their country or yielded themselves to Xerxes, none else would have made any attempt to resist by sea. While on land, in spite of all fortifications on the Corinthian Isthmus, the Spartans would have been forsaken by their allies, and must in the end either have died fighting or have succumbed. Thus, he sums up, 
the athenians next after the gods drove away the king because they feared not the oracles of delphoi neither were they scared by the great perils which were coming on their country End of section 17everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price ba da ba ba ba